You are listening to Podco, making government work for us. Now, here are your hosts, Morley Oates, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin. Hello, listeners. I'm Luke Ashworth. I'm Morley Oates. And I'm Stephen Tomlin. And this is Podco, making government work for us. For the next hour, we'll be taking a deeper dive into politics and current affairs with the help of our guests. Our theme today is what is climate change? What do you think of environmental restructuring? And what do we need to do about climate change? Does our policy and approach to climate crises need to change? If you want to keep up to date on what we're doing, you can follow the show on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at podco1. You can like us at uh, Facebook page, which is at podcochmr. And we even have an email address, which is podcochmr at gmail.com. Have we, we actually ever had anyone? No, I keep checking it. Okay. <laughs> so we, we, have <laughs> we have high expectations. We have high. Use We do whatever. get a bit of feedback on Twitter. <laughs> so we want to hear your feedback, uh, whatever means you use. Uh, this show is all about making government work for us. We have very high expectations. And we're here in St. John's, Newfoundland. We have a great fourth episode lined up for you today. In just a few moments, we're going to speak with Josh Leprosky, Professor of Geography, and Jess Podester, Municipal Climate Change Advisor with the Conservation Corps of Newfoundland and Labrador. Before we get to those conversations, first we have our weekly news roundup. And we're starting today with the aptly-themed Canadian disunity continues. Wexit, they've got the crazy hats, and they're trying to organize a federal party. The world is going crazier every day. And we're not really seeing a whole lot of leadership from our, um, our federal government to prevent that either, right? There's, there's no one coming out and actually sounding like a leader. All, all we've really got right now is um, a minority government that's kind of pandering to provincial jurisdictions. We have all kinds of mixed messages coming out. This is a, this is a cabinet about green. <laughs> Yet they're going to try to accommodate the province of Alberta in the energy sector as well. And social media is all about the uh, group proposing major border changes so that Alberta doesn't have to go through British Columbia. And well, BC's always stopped them from coming into British Columbia. I uh, did a thesis on Wacky Bennett on physical infrastructural development. So there's been a lot of, you know, generations of border defense. BC doesn't want Alberta interfering in BC politics or what they do within British Columbia. That's or, a Canadian or, a- approach. Or, or annexing uh, large, large swathes of northern British Columbia. And I wonder about ship, shifting that discourse as I, we move very quickly along, battling for the offshore, uh, where Mr. Grimes and, and Premier Ball and others have entered. Very similar to what we saw in Brazil. We have Brazil, a president who's talking about all the wonderful things, uh, you know, in terms of their development and attacking the critics in the same way that our people are attacking our critics and blaming them for some of the problems which we are facing. Well, I think that's uh, obviously uh, uh, just just floored the rest of us. <laughs> well, and we've, we've had um, an opposition here that's come out to kind of in favor of the... Um, the equalization referendum and really like as a province we can't afford a referendum and we don't need a referendum to tell us that there are problems with the um, equalization program and we've also got leaders who are talking ethical oil they're talking about different things it's so confusing no wonder the public knows (laughs) and of course the opening of the house of assembly where we have Jerry Byrne and Andrew Parsons both in trouble and you know ideas about whether uh, Mr. Byrne should be removed from cabinet which came up in, in the house as well what what a mess I mean those are the kind of problems that really shouldn't be showing up for the liberals until next term if they'd kind of use the advantages of incumbency properly and kind of manage their mandate properly it strikes me as outrageous actually that kind of a Parsons from a West Coast liberal family would not have cover in committee like that kind of tells you how disjointed they are as a caucus right now and the fact that Perry Trimper would even dare to run for speaker after being kicked out of cabinet like that like like clearly he's trying to send a message to the premier there Um, and it seems like you know there's there's kind of a conflict that's going on between Trimper and the premier and it's it's every man for himself in that caucus right now. And poor Judy Foote, she tried to set the, the plate so everybody would remove the politics. And yesterday was all about the, the, the politics. But what about the election 
Uh, what do you think of Brexit? We, ah, our yes. experts <laughs> who was following uh, us on a daily basis. Absolutely, Brexit. Uh, back, uh, yeah, backed myself into being an expert there. It was never something I wanted to be an expert on. But Me too. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I moved to Britain for four years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I think what's interesting is that uh, you've got a kind of a very weird situation. There's a kind of a four-party split over Leave and Remainers. So you've got the Conservatives and the Brexit Party fighting over Leave voters. And you've got the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats fighting over Remain. But you've also got two other battles that mix up those those pairs because the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats are now fighting in Conservative seats over Remain Conservatives who are who potentially could move to the Liberal Democrats in some of the key Conservative Remain seats. But the other thing is we have Labour Party people who voted Remain, it's probably about 25% of their vote. And for many Labour Party people, they would rather, to use a Boris Johnson phrase, die in a ditch than vote Conservative. Conservative is a, <laughs> a toxic brand. So they may, might switch to the Brexit Party. On top of that, we've got the Scottish National Party uh, doing well in Scotland, and they're pushing for a second independence referendum. And even more remarkable, this doesn't happen very often in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin has agreed to stand aside... Uh, in three constituencies for Remain candidates. One of those Remain candidates is SDLP, so it's also nationalist, but one of them's Alliance, which is a kind of party in the middle. It's uh, not non-sectarian. And they're also willing to stand aside for one unionist as well, who's a pro-Remain unionist. So this is unprecedented. So this is going to be going back to what we were talking about last week, in fact, with um, on polls, is that uh, there's so much shifting around, we can't really trust the polls at the moment. So, Laurie, what do you think of impeachment and Mr. Trump? What's going on well, down in the Well, actually, States? before we move on to impeachment, I think it's important to mention the number of women MPs that are resigning, <gasps> yes, yes, not yeah. running again in Britain because of the death threats that they're receiving. Horrific. And, yeah. yes, um, you know, just the, the, the social media treatment. And, you know, they, they say they're not referring things to the police now that they would have referred to the police you know, probably three years ago. And of course, the thing that hangs over everybody's head there is the murder of Joe Cox. Yes. Right? So, I mean, and it's it needs to be said that this is terrorism against women in politics. Women in politics have to put up with way more of this than men do. And it has, you know, reached very dangerous levels in the yeah. UK right now. And just mentioning, yeah, Joe Cox was a uh, British Labour Remain MP who was murdered just before... The referendum in 2016 and then you yeah. had nigel farage come out and say no not a shot was fired and of course yeah. one absolutely had been fired with very disastrous consequences yeah. so what about impeachment what do you think laurie <laughs> <laughs> um i mean i would have had him gone yesterday but the the really frightening thing is kind of the the things that the diplomats are saying the diplomatic corps and the way that they're trying to weaponize uh civil servants to act politically it's amazing what's going on down there in terms of attacking process, raising questions in terms of you know the legitimacy of decision making within the system itself. Uh, now, of course, he's removed himself from the the climate change agreement in Paris as well. Yeah. <laughs> or trying to. Yeah. You're trying to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Complete. No, it chaos. was uh, the what was coming out. I mean, uh, the the way that uh, this diplomat after this ambassador in Ukraine after she's attacked uh, by the president. Uh, is advised by another colleague to defuse this by tweeting something nice about the president. And another um, important thing that I picked up was the idea that White House counsel had been refusing to adhere to subpoenas. Mm. Um, and Why should they should participate, right? <laughs> well, and you, you'd expect a lawyer to know better, <laughs> right? I mean, so, it's, yeah. it's contempt of Congress is what it is. Yeah, I mean, this comes down to you know, a major problem, even when you have a written constitution, even when you have a written constitution, so much of government working in a democracy relies on people, relies on conventions, and people not doing things because it's not the thing to do. And that's, our, now, yeah. and that's our common theme. Our yeah. executive branches are the control. <laughs> yeah, and so we're, we're, we've, got an ex- we've got an executive branch out of control. Absolutely. So this is, I think this is a... a, 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 a 
an extreme case of this, but this this is also happening in other other jurisdictions. And this as can't well. be left to the executive. It has yeah. to have. We have to have a larger conversation in terms of how do we fix this because this is a huge challenger problem around the world, not yeah. just in Canada. But the United States actually has legislative dominance, unlike Canada, and they're they're just not doing the job of checking the executive branch. Uh, is the problem in the U.S. <laughs> and superpartisanship <laughs> prevents them from doing that because yeah. Congress can't agree on anything. Everything is political. Well, and Congress yeah. is bought. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, well, uh, just a few announcements before we move on to our next guest. Uh, we have a political science seminar coming up with Lolleen Burdal on, uh, from the University of Saskatchewan on Friday the 8th of November at 2.30 in SN 2033. And her topic is Understanding Western Alienation, which... Very timely. It is indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's quite pertinent right now. So uh, um, be there or be somewhere else. And not bring your hats. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the climate march has been moved to the 29th of November. Note the change, because it was scheduled for the 1st of November. It's now on the 29th of November. And uh, there's a Facebook page you can follow up on that. Now, we'll take a break now. When we return, we'll be joined by our first guest, Josh, Josh Leporsky. He will be asking, we will be asking him, rather, about climate change, ethical oil, waste recycling, and the future of oil and gas investments. Making government work for us. Podco will be right back. Mothers, yours may be part of the 72%. Did you know that 72% of all Canadians with Alzheimer's disease are women? Take a moment, learn the 10 warning signs. Talk to the Alzheimer's Society. We can help, and you can help us. Visit alzheimer.ca and donate today. Hi, I'm Dave Panning from Figgy Duff, Rollins Cross, and the Irish Descendants, and you're listening to Schmur, I call it, CHMR 93.5. You need unwinding. Tension got your mind in a... Now back to Podco, making government work for us, with Lori Leos, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin. Welcome back to Podco, making government work for us. And now it's an honor to introduce our first guest, Jeff Leposky, um, who is a full professor in geography at Memorial University. He holds a PhD in geography from the University of Kentucky. His areas of research are globalization, economics and resources, and sustainable communities. Josh is also involved in decarbonization initiatives at Memorial University. Welcome, Josh. It's an honor to have you here with us. Thanks. Great to be here. And I get the first question today. So we're talking about climate change, and that's a word we hear a lot in the news lately. Uh, so let's take a step back and talk about what is climate change or the climate emergency, and how do we know it's happening? Yeah, so I think those are uh, a set of terms that probably need to be separated a little bit. So, you know, climate change is uh, a natural process in that over geologic timescales, thousands or millions of years, climates uh, have shifted in terms of temperature precipitation regimes and you know sort of these days uh, a set of words climate change global warming global heating climate emergency tend to get bandied about as if they're all the same thing so it's i think important to maybe keep those uh, separate there is a real difference between i guess what i would call contemporary uh, global heating uh, and um, much, much longer geological processes of climate change. Contemporary global heating is directly traceable to industrial action by human beings. We know that in a variety of ways. Climate modeling, for example, can uh, separate out the signals, if you will, from non-human processes like uh, solar activity, orbital changes, uh, uh, these sorts of variables, which certainly can affect the climate. But when you separate those signals out from uh, what the evidence shows from industrial activity, it is absolutely crystal clear that industrial activity is responsible for the vast bulk of global heating uh, that we see in the contemporary period. There was a time three or four decades ago when climate scientists might have had a disagreement over uh, how much of uh, the warming was human-induced, how much of it is it natural. But that 
uh, disagreement is long, long over in the climate science um, community, for lack of a better term. Our uh, Premier recently talked about uh, the province's oil being ethical oil. Um, is that a thing, ethical oil? Ethical oil is a thing to the extent that it is a marketing term. If by ethical is meant that oil is somehow inherently good or better than, uh, sorry, oil from Newfoundland is good or better than oil from elsewhere, you know, it depends on how you want to measure that. You know, an analogy that I might use is, do you want your drinking water with feces and strychnine or do you want your drinking water with feces and PCBs, right? Neither of those are ethical drinking water. The brand doesn't help. The brand does not help. The brand does not help. I think, you know, as soon as you are declaring some kind of emotional fealty to a place-based hydrocarbon, we're not talking about economics anymore. We're talking about something else entirely that has very little to do, well, really nothing to do with the, the science of uh, global warming and little or nothing to do with the economics of oil. So what are the uh, dangers of doubling oil and gas investment at a time when investment in oil and gas is declining and many parts of the world are moving towards a green economy? Yeah, I think there are, you know, there are many dangers. Um, those sorts of investments in big uh, you know, industrial scale infrastructure represent huge sunk costs and in, you know, in a sense, um, a, um, a real sense, uh, not sense, a actual momentum in directions that uh, large swaths of the rest of the world are starting to turn away from. You know, we, we sort of like to think of ourselves as having a certain sovereign control over our resources and the decisions that we make uh, being, um, you know, good for uh, Newfoundland and Labrador's economy. But, you know, I, it's a real mistake to think that um, we can make those decisions, meaning those of us in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, without consequence or with total sovereignty as if our province, you know, exists in some geopolitical vacuum. Mm. You know, reading the business press just over the last few days, we're looking at public uh, initial public offering IPO of Saudi Aramco, uh, the largest uh, you know oil company in the world, um, which is um, coming online with um, in, uh, increased oil and gas production from other jurisdictions, and is predicted to uh, shift the price of oil even further down. Um, you know, we know the costs of producing oil offshore from uh, Newfoundland and Labrador um, are quite high. And the costs have for some years been at or below just the breaking point, let alone profitability. So we're, by insisting on doubling down, we're in a sense guaranteeing ourselves um, to at the very least show a lack of leadership. <laughs> we're, we're actually clamoring to be at the end of the line uh, and, um, you know, perhaps more seriously setting ourselves up for a, you know, an even more substantial provincial fiscal crisis. And we can't forget the politics because Mr. Trump wants the offshore developed. Obama didn't. Mm. New York doesn't want it developed. Uh, so there are implications in terms of if we want to work with our neighbors, the implications in terms of the politics playing out here. That, that's right. I mean, again, I, I think what you're saying, Steve, speaks to this uh, idea I was bringing up earlier about, you know, to what extent we really can assume we have some sort of sovereign decision making over what to do with our resources. We have to sell those to markets and increasingly markets are turning away from, uh, from fossil fuels. And that turns up you know, in uh, in all kinds of evidence, and certainly not from uh, you can you, you can find the evidence in energy transitions from uh, groups like the International Energy Administration or Agency. I uh, beg your pardon. Um, you know, certainly uh, not exactly a, a, a crazy left wing leaning group. These no. are very status quo, um, if not right of center, uh, groups that are demonstrating over and over again that uh, oil and gas are on the way out. Josh, you're um, an expert on, on waste management, particularly in e-waste. Uh, now, um, 
many of us, myself included, many of the people listening, of course, engage uh, heavily in recycling, uh, but we don't really know what happens to the recycling or even the, uh, the leftover waste uh, after, uh, after it goes, after it's picked up. Uh, what exactly is the nature of the, of the global waste management system and what are the major problems we're facing with, with waste management? What are, what are the major threats? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think it helps to um, think of the international recycling industry in similar terms as mining, because what, what is in essence going on is that municipal solid waste, what you and I put into the, um, you know, what we call the waste stream or into our recycling uh, bins is uh, mined essentially for uh, materials broadly speaking, papers, metal, pla metals, plastics, glasses, that can be then subsequently processed and um, to a point where they can be sold back onto um, the world market for um, those commodities for production and, and take uh, the place of primary resources in the form of, of uh, secondary uh, resources. So the international recycling system is enormously complicated in the sense of um, supply chains and, and where things go, how they're processed, where they're processed, by whom, under what conditions. But it shouldn't be a surprise, even though it often is, to people to find out that um, a lot of the former waste material that we've put into a, a waste or recycling stream end up in the places in the world where our new products come from. China, of course, has for at least the last two decades been the, the, uh, one of those main destinations. But that's not, a, you know, that's not random chance. Also, of course, it's been and, and continues to be the workshop of the world, to use maybe a, a bit of a tired phrase. Um, more recently, just in the last couple of years, that broad international political economy of waste and recycling has been shifting as China has submitted files, I guess, to the to the World Trade Organization, essentially declaring that they would no longer allow the import of certain categories of materials that had in, in the past entered the country uh, as, as part of recycling systems. So it seems to be kind of a common issue having to do with sovereignty and the challenges of kind of working across borders and boundaries. So is there anything or is there anything that can be done in order to work uh, more effectively across systems as opposed to making these kinds of mistakes or preventing uh, collaboration or working together on problems um, across, again, uh, these sovereign uh, boundaries and borders? Yeah, I, I mean, I think big picture, broad brush stroke, the, the issue is to uh, keep scale uh, front and center. And so to back up to our conversation about offshore oil and gas in Newfoundland and Labrador, if, if action is framed strictly within the boundaries of the province, you've got a mismatch of scales of various kinds. Markets for oil and gas are outside the province and indeed outside of Canada. So if, you know, depending on where you sit in these sorts of debates, if you want to achieve certain things, you've got to match up scale with uh, what it is you want to achieve. When it comes to um, recycling, um, you know, I think a lot of people um, have a sense of, well, I, I put my stuff in a recycling bin, some magic that I can't see happens, and then it comes back to me as a, as a, a recycled product. And the emphasis is almost always placed on um, doing individual things to achieve environmental gains in that sense. So recycle more, carry a reusable coffee mug, these, these sorts of things. But of course, those, even in the aggregate of individuals, don't scale up to waste arising from uh, the uh, raw material extraction or manufacturing sectors. And indeed, most of the waste, whether you think of waste as CO2 emissions for uh, global heating or solid waste, most of that waste happens in the mining and manufacturing or the resource extraction and manufacturing stage long before you and I have even purchased this or that commodity. So when we put stuff in a recycling bin and then expect that recycling to somehow recoup 
or, or take care of those waste problems, we have a mismatch of scale. Um, the, the waste that already happened in raw material extraction and in manufacturing is at, at scale so much larger than even aggregate consumptive behavior that doing post-consumption waste management um, won't recoup it. Yeah. The problem. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm assuming that also uh, the recycling process also releases greenhouse gases. Yeah. Like mining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I. I mean, the two are not equivalent, but but I mean, recycling is an energy and material intensive process. I mean, you in order to recycle things, <clears throat> excuse me, in using the industrial systems for recycling that we have. They, you know, they shockingly run on electricity and that has to be generated somehow. And so recycling is not a zero or, or even negative, uh, re- uh, if you will, reducer of, of energy and material use. It actually adds a tiny amount uh, to the overall energy footprint of industrial systems. So you're involved with decarbonization initiatives at Memorial. What, or do you have any views on what the best ways are to approach decarbonization of our economy and society? Easy one, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, so obviously decarbonization is a, um, a pretty broad conversation that is going on now, but it also come, boils down to some real specifics. Essentially, in, if I have my dates right, October of 2018, the International Panel uh, Governmental Panel on Climate Change released a report indicating that in order to maintain a, a better than even chance of, uh, avoid, uh, of remaining at 1.5 degrees Celsius warming or less, we need to reduce global carbon emissions by, I believe it's 45% by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. Now those are very specific requirements and but while the requirements are specific how to attain them i think is if not wide open then uh, has quite a bit of flexibility so i think how to attain decarbonization um, depends in part on where you are talking about decarbonizing and and at what scale are we talking about a, a university a province a city a country the globe um, each of those different scales are you know, going to require different kinds of organization. I think it also bears saying that decarbonization, while it uh, is framed in the IPCC reports as about reducing greenhouse gases, is inherently also a social justice issue. We know that the effects of global warming are hammering populations who are one disproportionately least responsible for um, for uh, contemporary uh, global heating, and disproportionately poorer and unable to handle the consequences. That sounds very abstract, but all we have to do is look back a few months to the hurricane that hit the Bahamas, and the first swath of people to be assured that their homes would not be rebuilt were groups of, I believe it was Haitian immigrants who were there working essentially in the service economy. So, I mean, that it's one data point, but there are plenty of other data points just like that. We could go back to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and look at the gentrification of the city after after that, uh, that, that moved racialized and impoverished people out of portions of that city and so on. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks very much, Josh. And uh, your your comment there about the disproportionate um, uh, effects as well uh, reminds me of a piece I read just recently, arguing that uh, that the greatest effects are going to be felt in South Asia and, mm-hmm. and Central Africa. So mm-hmm. the areas that are actually producing the most greenhouse gases, um, the developed world, the North Atlantic world, and so forth, are going to suffer less than those. Where power lies matters. Yes, that's right. And and so I think it is any conversation about decarbonization needs to begin from the premise that this is, you know, a a question of uh, science, but also morality. And uh, those two have to go hand in hand. Yeah. 
Well, thanks very much there, Josh. Uh, there's a covered an enormous amount of, uh, of material here sure. uh, dealing with uh, dealing with climate change and global global heating <laughs> rather than uh, uh, global warming. Uh, we want to hear from you. Uh, do you have concerns about climate change and the climate emergency? Uh, what do you want to see government doing about climate change? Uh, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and express your opinions by sending them to our email address. Our Twitter handle is at podco1. Our Facebook page is at podcochmr, and our email address is podcochmr at gmail.com. Somebody has to send us a Gmail. <laughs> so we're going to take, take a break. Uh, when we return, we'll, we'll jo be joined by our second guest, Jess Puddister. So we'll be back to ask her about climate emergency and municipal politics. Making government work for us. Podco will be right back. Hey, everybody. I'm Brad. Are you looking for something new to listen to on Sunday evening while you clue up all those last-minute weekend chores and activities? Get yourself ready for Monday to start things fresh. Tune on into Unit Radio. 7 to 8 Sunday evenings right here on 93.5 CHMR-FM. Listen to over 500 radio stations from anywhere in Canada with Radio Player Canada, the must-have app that's as Canadian as you are. Smart, lovable, easygoing, fits in anywhere. From early morning hockey practices to late night after parties, enjoy every type of radio station anywhere, anytime. Listen through your phone, Sonos, Google Chromecast, Google Home, Amazon Echo, Apple CarPlay, and Android Auto. Download the Radio Player Canada app today. It's where Canadian radio plays. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to 93.5 CHMR-FM. Whatever happened to gold in the water swam into our nets and kept our spirits strong and free now back to podco making government work for us with Lori leos luke ashworth and stephen tomlin welcome back to podco i'm Lori leos i'm stephen tomlin and i'm luke ashworth so i'm honored to introduce our next guest Jess Puddister is a municipal climate advisor with the Conservative Corps Newfoundland and Labrador. She is Conservation Corps. Conservation Corps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry about we that. We keep each other in line here. Well, I think that's another session. <laughs> Conservation Corps. Yeah, that's that, Good that catch. matters. Yeah. So she has a, a bachelor's uh, in science in the Earth Sciences from Dalhousie University, where I did my master's degree, and, and you, you were there MA, as, as well. <laughs> and has been in the sustainable sector since 2013. Jess has been active in local youth climate marches. So it's great having you here today. And you're not a conservative. You're, you're, you're in the conservation corps. That's correct. Thanks for having me, guys. So I got the first question. Um, so you're a municipal climate change advisor. What are the challenges addressing climate problems at the local level since municipalities lack constitutional powers, resources, and autonomy? It's a really important question. Um, I think by far and large, um, infrastructure is the biggest problem in municipalities and having the funding available to properly maintain that infrastructure and renew it when it reaches the end of its useful life. Um, in a lot of municipalities, you know, the roads and the pipes in the ground, they've been there, there hasn't really been any work done on them since they were installed in the 70s. And they're starting to experience problems now and it's very challenging to secure funding with the low population densities that exist in rural municipalities. So that's something that keeps cropping up time and time again in the work that I do. I mean, culverts are too small everywhere across the province. It's a massive problem. Um, we need like to become better at surface water management and helping our municipal councils wrap their heads around what that really means and what the repercussions are for the health and safety of their residents. I mean, beyond that, you know, most municipalities have really limited staff. They might have one clerk that works part-time. IRPA, the Urban and Rural Municipalities Act, uh, is super outdated. It's like 20 years old, and there's not really any you know, indications in that act on how to respond effectively to climate change. So we need updates there. 
And I think, too, just the disconnect between, you know, decision makers, engineers, the finance people, they're not really breaking down the silos effectively enough so that we can have a coordinated response. Yeah, and, and I guess overlying all of that, I would say a lot of municipalities are sort of preoccupied with uh, the demographic crisis that we're experiencing in Newfoundland. So if you're going to be investing in climate change resilience, are you doing that knowing that your population is still going to be there 10, 20 years from now? We need volunteers, right? We do. (laughs) It's something Newfoundland Labrador is really good at, actually. It's a big resource is volunteers. Um, But yeah, that's what I would say. And it's worth pointing out at this time that the city of St. John's voted to recognize the climate emergency and that was led by young people I believe the social justice co-op yeah um, who've been active in the climate marches so that speaks to your point of the necessity of young people to to lead on this but now let's talk about uh, municipal planning and you and I've talked about municipal planning before and how Europe does a much better job of it than we do are there ways that we could redesign our cities to both respond to the climate change crisis and improve our quality of life? Definitely, yeah. I think that social equity and satisfaction go hand in hand with climate change response. I think if we're building resilience and mitigating our greenhouse gases, we also become stronger, more fair, and happier communities. I'm just gonna be blunt, cars need to go. Like we have a, a major dependence on cars. And you know, since the onset, or I guess like, like the, when cars started to become in the mainstream, we started designing our cities and towns very differently. The, the focus was on how to make it most convenient for this car and where it can park, rather than on a human scale and what's important to people moving into community, meeting their basic needs. The best neighborhoods and towns in our province that pe- that are sought after and desired desired to live in were designed before cars. So, like, if you think about like the Georgetown neighborhood in St. John's, like that's my neighborhood. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if I was going to live anywhere, I'd want to live there, and it was not designed with the car in mind. I saw recently that about thirty percent of our province's emissions are connected to transportation. Um, so, you know, there there definitely are ways to redesign our cities, and I think the most important thing is creating complete neighborhoods so that people don't have to travel as far to to buy the things they need, to go to school, to go to the doctor, to do whatever they need to do during the course of the day that we shouldn't need to have to get in a car and drive. So that's what I would really like to see change going forward. And Um, I'd like to say there too, you know, like I did my PhD in Exeter in the United Kingdom and I didn't have a car the whole time I was in the United Kingdom Mm -hmm. and it was very walkable and there was, you know, lots of businesses within, you know, a five minute walking distance Mm -hmm. of my flat and and I lived in Ottawa Mm -hmm. and I hardly ever used my car in Ottawa. Um, you know, the, the dependence on car culture in, in St. John's is not quite normal, I don't think. Not as, no. not as much as we think it is. I agree, yeah. I lived in Japan for just over a year, um, and I didn't have a car there either. Now, obviously, there was a language barrier in terms of, like, making connections with the community. But even with that language barrier, I built a lot of really neat local relationships within my neighborhood just by walking to the subway every day. And just by, like, popping into the grocery store that was on the corner of my block... It was a very small grocery store, but that was like the habitual practice of people living in Japan. Like they don't get in their car and drive for 20 minutes to Costco to fill up their car and then bring it back, like bring back two weeks worth of provisions. Like people pop into their local spot once a day, once every couple of days. So I, keep, I, I keep going back to Copenhagen and Copenhagen. This is wonderful yeah. uh, for, for people who want to ride bikes and drink beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, I mean, following on from that, uh, we do largely have a city at the moment in St. John's, uh, if outside of the the downtown core in Georgetown, that is designed for cars. Mm-hmm. So we think all of sort of the development of all the new subdivisions and so forth. And another issue, of course, is that uh, it's a lot easier to be uh, carbon neutral, getting towards carbon neutrality, uh, and to be green if you refit rather than rebuild. So I suppose one question there is what do we do with the fact that we start actually for a city designed for cars Mm -hmm. and sort of moving on from that I think more generally uh, you know what is being done at the municipal level to deal with the climate emergency? I think that's a really important question and it's one that's kept me up a lot at night I've been lying in bed thinking like god how are they going to redesign Kenmount Terrace to make it sensible? (laughs) Um, I don't have the answer to that question Um, I definitely know people I could reach out to to find some more insight for you guys but 
beyond that particular facet of the question, I think we can look to the motion that was passed last night in St. John's City Council chambers um, for the, the climate emergency motion. In that motion, it included a lot of actions. It's not, it wasn't just like for the sake of saying it. So, you know, in that motion, they included requiring a sustainability plan by the end of this year that has measures for adaptation and mitigation. Um, there's going to be greenhouse gas emissions targets by 2030 and 2050, which ties it to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes, uh, Change Recommendations at the UN. There's also provision for vulnerability assessment and finding opportunities to build more resilience in our community and in, in our infrastructure. Identification of funding sources. So again, like I said at the beginning, like we, in order to decarbonize and respond to climate change effectively, we can only do that to the extent that we can afford to. So we really need to identify where that money can come from um, and apply to it and find out how we can collaborate to make that money more accessible. Um, I know there was also mention of committing to the global covenant of mayors for a climate emergency and and creating accountability as well. So having reporting systems for energy use, emissions, weather impacts, and having those things inform the budget and policy. Policy cycle matters. Yeah, it really does. And it has to be a living, breathing thing. Like it can't just be, we're going to build this policy, great, like raw, let's put it on the shelf and never think about it again. (laughs) That happens too much. It has to be living and breathing. Addressing climate change is a multi-jurisdictional issue. Uh, Are there forms for discussing this issue across jurisdictions? And do climate experts from um, municipalities interact with the provincial and federal counterparts? It's a really... All of these questions are stellar, (laughs) I have to say. Um, We put a lot of thought into these. (laughs) (laughs) I think that climate change response in our province is a relatively new thing. Um, I think, you know, in the past couple of years, we've seen movement in terms of getting people working with municipalities and working with the province to create goals. Some of, like one, probably the most, the, the most key player in bridging the the jurisdictions across the country has been the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Um, so that's the organization that has funded the work that I do in climate change vulnerability assessment and adaptation. And they also partnered with an organization, I think it's based out of Ontario, called ICLE. And they've created the, the Partners for Climate Protection Program, which is a national program. It's available to all municipalities. It's free. And it has like an online calculator where people can go in and um, create an inventory of their greenhouse gases that they're producing at the corporate level in a municipality. So then they can wrap their heads around, okay, here's how much emissions we're putting out as a collective. Here's what we need to do to reduce that. How do we make a plan for that? So that that is a really, really important tool, I think, for bridging the jurisdictional divides and like realizing that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's some, like, you know, other provinces like Ontario and BC, they've been doing this work for longer than we have. So we do need to be reaching out. I know that FCM also holds conferences pretty regularly. I was in Ottawa last February where I met people working on climate change response right across the country and it really opened my eyes a lot. And I, I still talk to a lot of them on a regular basis to get ideas. So yeah, it is happening. Good. That's wonderful. I'm talking about policy learning and social learning. <laughs> the, and the venues for discussion. It's, it's, it's not that difficult to do no. if, 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 we, if we want to do it. So if we double the offshore development and do other things that end up expanding the carbon footprint, can we come up with other changes in behavior to compensate for this? That's a tough one. It's okay if you say no. <laughs> I'm going to say no. <laughs> I mean, like, like I mentioned earlier, transportation does take up a pretty big chunk of our emissions as, as a community in Newfoundland Labrador. But we're also faced with the unique challenge of having a small population spread out over a really big geographic area. Um, so a one-size-fits-all solution for decarbonizing transportation isn't really going to work. I think we need to have a pretty multifaceted approach to solving that problem. And that's going to include better transit, regional transit, electric cars, um, and charging stations, and incentives for, for transitioning to those things. Like, I know a lot of people who saved up for a long time to buy their car, and they're not really you know, open to just saying goodbye to that because they made a lot of sacrifices to get to the point where they could afford that. So government really needs to make it attractive for people to transition. And I think that, I mean, that one of the questions we're dealing with in, in our podcast is where does power lie? Right. And whose behavior is forced to, to change? And that has to do with power. And so if, if we have, you know, elites making decisions which are going to increase the carbon footprint mm-hmm. and the people who have lack power have to make all the sacrifices in terms of their, their lives in order to make up for it, 
we need to talk about that. We yeah. need to talk about democratic reform in terms of understanding and recognizing that some of these choices are mostly in the, you know, the result of power yep. or abuse of power as opposed to what is actually good public policy. I think that political will is a really, really important thing when it comes to climate change response and just having the courage to try doing it differently. Like, I know it's really scary, especially where we're so dependent on those royalties from the oil industry, but it's not going to continue forever. And if we just keep kicking the can down the road, it's going to be my problem. It's going to be my kids' problem when they're running for office, maybe. And scarier for the people who are directly benefiting from some of those old practices and oh behaviors. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, I read an article recently that kind of that compared climate change response to um, you know getting involved in the war effort during the Second World War, and you know. For a long time, I think people in the West didn't really realize how serious the war was really going to be. And then the, and then they realized that this is a really important thing that we need to help address. Um, and they totally transformed the economy in Canada within like a five year span. Uh, it took a lot of guts, um, but they did it. And, you know, when you look at the, the percentage of our, I guess, the, the infantry that we provided to the war effort, Canada made up about 2%, I think. And ironically, our national emissions add up to about two percent on the global scale so you know i don't i think you could ask anybody you know do you think that our contribution to the war effort was significant and everyone would say yes of course and that was our responsibility and our obligation and and we're very proud of what we contributed the same can be said for climate change response i believe so we could do it it's a choice yeah it is a choice yeah i think so and it's better to be proactive than reactive because if we're reactive to this later on it's going to cost us more money absolutely and it's going to be yes the, the problem is that we will we'll have to start paying at some point so mm-hmm. the question is whether we're prepared uh, or we just leave it until we crash yeah um i i want to uh finish off with the issue of knowledge, resources, and competences that we need to invest in and talk to you about that. But um, before I do, I'm kind of linked to this, uh, is, the, um, is the issue that came up actually in the decarbonization, uh, the decarbonize NL um, conference, which is that municipalities do seem to be reactive uh, to damage caused by, by uh, climate change and, mm-hmm. uh, and global heating. Uh, and they're tends to be in a uh, when faced with damage uh, that we tend to try and restore it to the status quo ante to where mm-hmm. it was before mm-hmm. uh, rather than responding by repairing to something new mm-hmm. and, and being as, as Laurie says I don't like the word proactive but I can't think of a better one yeah to be mm-hmm. proactive yeah. rather than reactive I like proactive uh, well yeah okay <laughs> I can be convinced I'm, it's not a hill I'm going to die on and I'm thinking here particularly also I, I heard a lot of complaints about the uh, Municipal Government Act as well and how that constrains municipal, municipal government's responses so I suppose yeah what what knowledge and resources and competences do we need to invest in at the municipal level? And um, what are the kind of the, the challenges to us doing that? Right. So I think it's really important to note at this point that in most cases, municipalities are really aware of the infrastructure that is at risk. And they would really like to be replacing it sooner than later and be more proactive. But they just don't have the money. You know, like when... When a big storm comes through like Igor and rips out the highway and disconnects the community from the rest of the province, the town probably knew that that road was vulnerable and they'd probably been telling people at higher levels of government for for quite some time, like, hey, we need some help and attention here. Um, But I guess it's hard to justify, like from a provincial or federal standpoint, with such a limited budget to provide to municipalities. Um, So that's one thing that I've been noticing in all of the towns. And they're very frustrated with the fact that things are being replaced at the status quo and not building in more redundancy to prepare for the bigger, more frequent storms. But in terms of knowledge capacities, I think asset management, I've learned, is is probably one of the most important things. I've been working in climate change adaptation for about a year and a half, and I just took a course online in asset management, and I realized that I've been speaking the language of asset management for a year without even realizing that that's what I was talking about. <laughs> um, and it's something that most municipalities aren't really participating in yet. Um, like they don't even really have inventories of the assets they have or projections on when those assets are going to be up for renewal. So that's something that I think people need to invest in. Greenhouse gas accounting. So understanding like how to tabulate, like, okay, here's the amount of emissions collectively that's coming out of our fleet. Here's the amount of emissions that's coming out of our buildings etc. Just being able to tabulate those things and integrating modern planning practices. 
I think. Unfortunately, most towns in Newfoundland and Labrador can't afford to have a like a municipal planner on staff. They hire like a contractor to come in, you know, once every five or ten years to help update their municipal plan, their development regulations. And I've seen in a lot of cases like contractors who've been around since the dinosaurs age and um, they just copy and paste development regulations from town to town which is which is problematic it's not you know based on the unique nature of that town or or thinking about climate change response at all also placing value on natural assets so i think a lot of people when they think about infrastructure they think about the work that municipalities do they forget that there are natural parts of our environment that are providing a service to us so if you have a wetland that and you take out that wetland, it's going to cost you money to put in an engineering solution. That wetland is filtering and, and holding on to surface water. And if we take that out, like we're going to see more flooding. So people need to wrap their heads around that. Um, and we really also need to see more flood risk mapping across the province. Unlike our political leaders, you're giving me confidence as a policy wonk because you're talking <laughs> about asset-based approaches to decision-making, <laughs> you know, needs-based approaches to decision-making, the policy cycle. It's not that difficult. No. Uh, we should be having these conversations. We should be learning about how to actually do this. Um, so I, anyway, for me, I'm very happy to see all of this discussion, which is really focused in terms of understanding how easy it is to actually to transform or bring about change. Yeah, yeah, and it really all it takes is to sit down at the same table and talk to one another and not just like isolate yourself in your office and only talk to people who understand the same things as you. We need to be interdisciplinary if we're going to be effective in climate change response. Thanks so much, Jess, for coming in to talk to us. I mean, there's a, a lot of rich detail in, uh, that's coming out here. I mean, one of the things that kind of struck me imme- immediately was, uh, was the issue of planning departments and the lack of planning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were talking before, uh, um, right at the beginning there, about uh, the issue of European cities. Uh, Copenhagen was mentioned, uh, Exeter. These have very large planning departments, they of do. course. And, yeah. and that's how they're able to do what they do. And uh, the municip- municipal, municipal level of government does seem to really be on the front line. Uh, are here where you're working. They definitely are. Yeah. Yeah. Which means they need to be resourced. Which <laughs> they needs, do need to be they resourced. They need to be resourced and they need planners. Yeah. We and need power. more planners. Power. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and more power. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I agree. But, but, but thanks so much for that. Well, and we want to hear from you. What do you think the municipal level of government should be doing to deal with climate change? How should our local communities adapt? You can follow the show on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is podco1, at podco1. Like our Facebook page at podcochmr and our email address is podcochmr at gmail.com. I'm pumped now. I'm, I'm, I'm excited with uh, what we did today. Anyway, <laughs> so thank you for joining us for this episode of Podco, making government work for us. We'll leave you with a quote from Rachel Carson, who is the author of Silent Spring. The road we have long been traveling is deceptively easy a smooth superhighway on which we progress with great speed, but at its end lies disaster. So goodbye and happy landings. Goodbye. Goodbye. If you have any questions or opinions on today's program, you can like Podco on Facebook, follow Podco on Twitter, or email your questions and opinions to podcochmr at gmail.com. This has been Podco with Lori Leotz, Luke Ashworth, and Stephen Tomlin.